Get ready to change the way you think about the world of business. Our guest this week, Melina Palmer, is a true expert in the field of behavioral economics. Not only is she the CEO of The Brainy Business, a company that trains and consults businesses on how to use behavioral economics to their advantage, but also uh, she's also a best-selling author and keynote speaker whose work has been celebrated globally. With her books and podcasts downloaded in over 170 countries and her teachings at Texas A&M University, Melina is sure to change the way you think about the psychology of buying. Melina, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So let's use the, the first buzzword that I used was behavioral economics. But before we dive into that, uh, can you tell the audience and me who you are? What's your background? Yeah, so my undergrad is in marketing and uh, business administration. So I worked in brand strategy and marketing for um, a decade, really, uh, before I fully discovered behavioral economics, which, like you said, we'll talk about, but it's the psychology of buying decisions and um, have just always been fascinated by human behavior, why people do the things they do, why they buy the things they buy, and uh, being able to learn more about our brains and how they really work instead of how we think they should is uh, something that I really enjoy and then helping others to understand that and apply it into their lives and businesses as well. And actually, I, I do want to remind the audience, I, I read it off very quickly. Uh, this is the book that we are talking about. It's What Your Customer Wants and Can Tell You. It's by Melina Palmer. It's available everywhere where amazing books are sold. So Definitely go on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever uh, you, you buy your books. Definitely uh, grab a copy. So, um, so what is the elevator pitch for behavioral economics? Yeah, so we all talk and think a lot about how people should do things, right? We, we know that we should eat right and exercise, but obviously not everyone is in the best of health uh, because we don't always do what we know that we should. And it's the same with our customers and with employees of teams and things like that at work. And so what behavioral economics is, is understanding, like I said, the psychology of why people actually do the things they do and buy the things they buy. And as a combination of traditional economics and that psychology neuroscience uh, to better predict behavior, because traditional economics does assume those rational people making logical decisions. And so uh, mapping isn't uh, fully correct when you're uh, predicting what people are going to do. And so in this way, we can understand the rules of the brain, how it actually makes decisions, and then use that to communicate better. And a way to think about it uh, would be if you imagine your brain like a person riding an elephant. And this is an example from a psychologist out of NYU uh, that you have your logical conscious rider that knows this is where we're going. This is what I want to do. I got a plan. I'm ready to go. And then the elephant, that subconscious elephant is uh, you're kind of at the mercy of where it wants to go. And it doesn't speak the same language as you, so you can't logic it into going where you want. You can't push or pull it into that direction. And so instead, being able to motivate the elephant, understand what's going to make it want to go down that path, is the better way to be communicating with people. Uh, so when we sit down and do stuff 
in business, communicating to customers. You think I'm going to build this product and I bet they're going to want this. They, sh everybody should love this thing. Uh, That's every entrepreneur. Yeah. It's a writer thinking you're communicating to other writers, but really it's the elephant that is doing the bulk of that buying. And so you want to become more of an elephant whisperer in the communication you do. And that's what behavioral economics can really help you to do. So let's use some examples for like uh, applications of uh, behavioral economics and maybe some of the principles. If you go over some of the principles and then give examples of some of those principles. Sure. Uh, so one of my favorite ones and that I think is a best place to start for anyone that's just getting into the space is framing. And that is how you say something matters more than what you are saying to anyone. And so in this way, favorite example is to imagine you're uh, going to the uh, grocery store, you need to pick up some hamburger and you go and there are two stacks almost identical. One is labeled as 90% fat-free and the other as 10% fat. Which one do you want to buy? Which feels more compelling to you? For most people, everybody says around the world, 90% fat-free is the one that we like better, that feels better to me. Logically, we know it's exactly the same thing, but the brain hears it very, very differently. So 90% fat-free feels like this great healthy decision I'm making for my family. 10% fat's like, yikes, I haven't been to the gym in like three years. That sounds terrible. Uh, and it feels like a bad choice. So in business, thinking about you might have all the right stuff. Your product might be great. Your pricing could be great, but you're just talking about it in 10% fat terms and don't even realize it. If you can look to where you can shift it, reframe to be 90% fat free, or if your whole industry talks about something in 10% fat terms, you can say the same thing in a slightly different way and really position yourself to be the right uh, person that, you know, people are going to migrate to. Is uh, is the word in that scenario like have have more to do with the word free itself, like free shipping, buy one get one free, uh, free with purchase. Your your mind is kind of trained on on the on, on to look out for that free, and then when you say ten percent fat free, uh, it, it's uh, it's your mind is saying that oh you know what uh, that that ten percent fat is not there. Versus 10% fat means it's there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and free, there's a whole host of stuff with free specifically. Uh, so some, so framing isn't only about that terminology and using that, uh, but it is something that has a real association in our brains that we think, you know, free is good. We like free, uh, you know, paying one cent for a piece of candy is different than getting a piece of candy for free. And even though it's almost the same, it's not really the same. And so I know Dan Ariely's done some really interesting work in that space. Who's a no notable behavioral economist. And so some other examples for framing that come into play, um, you know, one is even just jargon that we use at work. So I have an example of a, a financial institution that I was doing some work for. They had a checking account. They were really excited about being able to put out into the world, uh, rewards checking and their billboards. They were planning to have say, um, 
earn up to 1.26% APY for up to $25,000 in balances. Like this is what was going to go on the billboards, which, you know, Southern California, that's not really turning heads and making people stop on the freeway. It's a a little bit more uh, not interesting to anyone. And so in working with them, got them to do a reframe. And instead to say, did your checking account pay you $315 last year? Hmm. It's the same numbers presented in a different way where you can very easily say either yes or no, that no, it didn't. Who's talking about that, right? And you get excited and want to learn more. So it's like that little bit of information there. So that reframe of how you present 1.26% of 25000 which means nothing to anyone, to $315, which is very relevant to someone, is something simple that can have a drastic change on behavior. Is that more to do with, as human beings, we're just bad at math? Or let's call it Americans. Other people, I'm sure that they're better than us, you know, that it's 1.26% of 25,000. How do I even do the math? You know, what what does that even mean? Right? Yeah. Is it it that or is it it more to the fact that, hey, I'm I'm laying out $25,000. If I were to put it, let's say, in an index fund, I've heard that I can get eight to twelve percent return per year, right? And and my money can grow even faster. So this is telling me it's eight times less. And now, now, now that savings account has become an investment account, which it that's not the that's not the purpose of the savings account, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. The um, our brains are really lazy. That's the the main thing. We yes, they're a supercomputer in a lot of ways, but getting back to that subconscious versus conscious processing. Uh, so if you think about your brain like a computer, you know, some studies are finding that the, the subconscious can do about eleven million bits of processing per second lots of stuff going on. Compare that to the conscious brain, uh, which is that writer can do about 40 bits per second compared to 11 million. Even if it was 40,000, that's a really bad ratio, right? Mm -hmm. And so that subconscious, another way I talk about this is if you think about like a gatekeeper, a receptionist, if you're trying to get a meeting with a busy executive. So that receptionist is trying to keep as much information as it can to itself and be making as many decisions as possible to not have to deal with the executive here. Right. And so that subconscious filter says, I got a rule for that. I got something for that. Easy, 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 quick, quick, quick. Got it, got it, got it. And things like equations that we don't want to have to do that aren't easy, like two plus two is four or whatnot. But when you get into things that we're not doing every day, that's not very I don't really care about that. I'll think about that later, right? I think the I'll think about that later is a decision, a default decision that's made quite a bit by our subconscious here. And so something like that, especially, like I said, a billboard when you're driving down the street, that's not like pulling in your attention when you're on a Southern California freeway by any means that you're thinking about hmm, the index fund versus uh, like, no, that didn't even register. And so that simplicity is something that's really important. And yes, to know that the brain of your customer is very, very lazy. So, so besides like besides that, like what are other examples of where there's a disconnect of brain versus a decision making that you wish people knew? Yeah. Another really important thing to keep in mind is that all of our senses are very impactful on the decisions that we make. So we like to think that, you know, people are going to process 
all this information very logically with anything that they're looking at. Uh, but, and the other senses get really neglected often. So uh, imagine that you were, um, you have a gas station and you want to increase sales of coffee. You know, what might you do? You would think, uh, we should put out ads, uh, talking about how we've got, you know, cheap coffee. We run a discount. We have a promo. Everybody really jumps to discounts very quickly as something that you need to do. Uh, but there was at one particular gas station that they decided to instead pump out the scent of coffee at the gas pumps and <laughs> didn't have to do ads for anything. You're laughing because you know it's a very potent scent, right? It's something no, that no, makes I a difference. I'm from New York City. That's where I am. I don't know where yeah. you are. Are you in California? I'm in Seattle. Yeah. You're in Seattle. I'm in New York City. So when you're in uptown, downtown, midtown, doesn't matter. As you're walking by any of restaurant row, right? Anywhere, you smell that Chinese food. You smell the Italian food. You smell mm -hmm. the Japanese food. You just smell mm -hmm. it and it just, it just triggers you. That's why it's funny that they took something that worked really well for the restaurant industry and applied it at a gas station for coffee. Right. Their sales of coffee went up 300% just wow. by having the scent of coffee. No ads. Zero dollars. Yeah. Right. You just have that. that you scent bought a there. fan. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so then people just naturally, you know, you're on the road trip and you go, you know, coffee sounds good. I think I'm just going to run it. You don't even necessarily notice that the scent was there. Maybe you did. You don't know that it's intentional though. It's like bakeries too, right? Where you're having that scent out there to draw people in. Of pastries and, so, and delicious, whatever, right. you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a concept of priming that you're encouraging someone, you're really drawing them in with something that's happening just before that point of decision making here. So, um, you know, that you're in a physical location and that's where someone might say, Hey, like, I don't sell, I don't have people there. I'm all online or I'm a service-based business or even in communication with employees, this priming, this, uh, in a framework I have that's featured in my books, I, I call it, uh, it's not about the cookie. So priming is the scent of the cookies that draws you in. Uh, so to give a change management example, uh, priming often comes off really badly. And I talk about it as burnt popcorn in this case because we've all been at work where someone burnt a bag of popcorn and it's all anyone can talk like, about. by the way audience i'm gonna <laughs> disclose something to all of you i hate popcorn <laughs> hate popcorn you know, I'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you how deep that hate goes uh -oh. my mom my mom tells me that when she was pregnant with me i'm 50 by the way so <laughs> my mom says that when she was pregnant with me whenever anyone made in her family made popcorn she would just start throwing up <laughs> this, so is, this is before I even existed. <laughs> I hated it, <laughs> and now, and now, you know, my my daughter, my niece, they ask me to take them to uh, the movies, and I'm sitting in the middle of them. The two of them on on my two sides are eating away this, and I'm going, oh, holding onto my nose and face, you know, because I just have to do it as a parent, you know, as an uncle. <laughs> I have to put up with popcorn. But I just, I just cannot, I don't know, it's not an allergy, it's just that, you know, I'm, I'm, I become nauseous because yeah. of popcorn. Funny, the first I've heard of someone that is that, so for most of us, 
popcorn is this enticing scent that really draws you in. Uh, but burnt popcorn is a scent that oh. is awful. And it really lingers for a long time. Like I said, at work, it's all anybody can talk about for hours after someone burnt the popcorn. And so your communication uh, with, uh, at work can often be coming off as burnt popcorn if you're not careful. So I uh, had been at a company for a couple months. So I'm in that probationary period there at the beginning. On a Thursday at 10 a.m., I got an email from my boss that said, we need to talk, be in my office at two. That is a terrifying email to get. (laughs) (laughs) That that, that boss needs some coaching. Yes. And you would think like, Nobody thinks that I then went, oh, interesting. Wonder what that's about. Back to work, right? I stressed for four hours. I looked at every project I was working on, every person I had talked to. I came in ready for battle at two o'clock and gestured in to sit down. And the message is, I'm going to be out of the office tomorrow and wanted to let you know that I have you as the contact on my auto responder for my email. That could have been a text message, (laughs) not even an email, not even an email, a text message. Yes. And so in this way, I I came to learn over time, you know, this was how this person communicated. There was a very busy, important meeting on Thursdays, you know, just would send off a quick uh, email uh, as something came up. Uh, And, you know, maybe we'll be generous and say that it saved two minutes of time of not coming up with a more thoughtful email. And we would logically say people should know, people should know that it's not about that. It shouldn't be a big deal, but it is. And 10 years later, when I was writing about this in my second book, I felt my heart rate increased because it was still really stressful for me. And so to know that that lost me hours of productive time because of that burnt popcorn in the email, how that's coming across. And you could have just said, I'm going to be out tomorrow. Do you have time at two o'clock to talk about it? And it's a totally different scenario. So that's where that priming experience can come across even beyond actual physical scent. Uh, but you can see that how it comes across in all areas of business. You actually just gave me an idea. What I would what I would do, because I do have a technical background too, an engineering background. I'm going to actually write a, write a, um, a Chrome extension for Gmail or, or Outlook, you know, mm-hmm. that um, that's going to be a magical button for managers and supervisors. After they write the email, before hitting the send, they would uh, click on make it thoughtful or make it empathetic, mm-hmm. a button. It literally, <laughs> when they press that, I'm going to use G- chat GPT to write, rewrite it, rewrite that article, that that email in a thoughtful and empathetic way. And nice. then, and disable the send button so that they cannot <laughs> even send it unless they hit those either one of those two buttons. I like it. Yeah. Well, I end every episode of my podcast with be thoughtful. My like community is called the be thoughtful revolution. I'm, I'm all about thoughtfulness. <laughs> yeah. One of my other hats, this one says strictly business. Uh, my other hat says, uh, it's not mine. I actually bought it in Bali uh, when I vacationed there. Uh, it says stay human. Mm-hmm. It's, yes. it's an incredible, it's very powerful. Anywhere I go, I wear that. Uh, people in, in those venues don't forget me at all. They go yeah. Like, oh yeah, you're the stay human guy. All right. Yeah, I know you. <laughs> right. Well, that's They're the strangers thing. and they tell me that they know me. <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, that's the thing about behavioral economics. It sounds very clinical as a name, right? It sounds you re, for people that aren't familiar with the field. It's not the greatest name for, for us, especially when it is about 
helping people to be more human at work, you know, and recognizing that at the end of the day, you're communicating your customers are people, employees and team members are people. And we kind of forget that we're humans when we get to work, right? The thing that you would absolutely hate if it came to you in an email is what you write to someone else without really thinking about it. And the way that you think you want to be sold to is actually not what motivates you to click on something. Uh, and you should, you know that when you're a consumer, but when we're creating stuff, it feels totally different. And so to remember that humanness and to understand these rules that the brain is using to make decisions can help be a lens that you put in front to say, like you said, am I being thoughtful enough? Would the elephant like this? Whatever the question is that you can put to help you in that process. And, you know, behavioral economics is just helping people to recognize and implement that humanness. So with change comes discomfort, right? Discomfort, the difficulty. I mean, especially if it's, if you're doing that to yourself. So, uh, you know, can we make uh, meaningful changes without the discomfort and difficulty? I know Absolutely. that's where the growth comes from. I know that's where the growth comes from. No pain, no, no pain, no gain, right? Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, you know, change, we've all been told for our whole lives that change is hard. Getting people to change is hard. Change is hard. But it's not always hard, right? There are plenty of ways that we've changed over the years that you don't even realize it. It's really seamless and streamlined. You don't remember uh, you know, maybe when you decided to switch to a smartphone, but you're really happy you did, right? Uh, these sorts of changes that we're making continually. And so what's hard is trying to force the brain to do something that goes against its natural rules. You're never going to win that battle. Willpower is just not a great strategy for change. Whereas if you understand the rules of the brain and can work with it, it can make things, uh, make it so it's a lot easier. So some other interesting brain, fa brain facts that are important here are, so every single person, so take a minute here, you know, you're listening now, how many decisions do you think you made yesterday, right? If we think about decisions that we remember making and what we're sure we made, you know, maybe it's 250, or if you're going to go crazy and say 5,000 decisions that you made. Uh, but research is showing that people make on average 35,000 decisions every single day, 35,000 wow. decisions that are remotely conscious. So not like breathe in, breathe out, but like actual choices you're making. And wow. so the bulk of those are subconscious and the subconscious makes decisions based on habit and predictability. That's how that receptionist, that elephant is able to know what's coming and be able to contain those decisions is by knowing what's going to come next. It really likes that. So something that is outside of the norm, we don't like because it has to give up that control. So if you can work with an existing rule that can help something to work, or if you understand how something's going to work against you and you can change your behavior. So, you know, talking a bit about habits here now, habits come from a cue that has a particular context that is repeated, that has some sort of a reward that we want to keep getting. So I love a chai tea latte. I'm a big fan. I'm here in Starbucks country, like we said <laughs> in Seattle. And if I, uh, there used to a place I used to work, there was a Starbucks on the way. And so on my drive, even if I'm saying like, Melina, you're not going to get a Starbucks today. <laughs> you don't need it. You know, driving down the street and I see the logo 
and look and like, Ooh, I have a, I have a couple minutes. Like before that meeting, how oh, I've got a really stressful day. It's Thursday. Right. And, <laughs> I know and, then, gonna... and then you turn into this. My I'm already, precious... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've already turned in. I'm already in there. Right. That's done already. And so willpower. And I think, okay, tomorrow I'm going to do better tomorrow. So again, thinking about that priming piece and knowing how it's triggering something in my brain, seeing that logo, if I take a different route to work that doesn't drive by the Starbucks, I don't necessarily have that same craving and need to go get that chai tea latte because I didn't have all those context cues for my brain to reinforce the habit I'm trying to change. So taking a couple steps back and saying, instead of relying on willpower, I'm just going to in this like cold state when it's easy to plan, I can just pick a route that doesn't have a Starbucks on it and it'll be much easier to stick to this new thing that I want to be changing to. And so in uh, any of our points where we're trying to encourage people to change, working with those natural rules and understanding them can make it a lot easier. Um, can I share another example on this yeah, from do. a yeah, really yeah. interesting company? Let's cool. keep going. Yeah. So there is, if you, if I was to tell you that your new job is that you have to get every single person on the planet to properly throw away and sort their trash every single time in the entire world. And you can't do anything else with your life until you fix this problem. Do you feel good about that? Or like that's never going to happen in your children's children's children are going to be working on this, uh, you know, by at the end of days, trying to get people to sort their garbage, right? That's something that people don't throw things away in the way that they're supposed to, even though that they know that they, they should. Um, so if that was your task though, you may think, well, wh what am I going to do to get people to properly sort and throw away their garbage? They probably mm -hmm. just don't understand what goes in what container. It's confusing. What's compost, what's recycling. They don't know the rules. Uh, or, you know, they're just not uh, recognizing we need another brochure. We need a video with turtles with straws in their notices. We need to give stats about how big garbage island is. We need to get them intrigued by it and logic them into changing that behavior. But that hasn't worked for decades, right? It's not making a difference. And so there's a company called The Literary who has instead worked with some rules of the brain that do work in that they have turned litter into lottery tickets. So they mm. have invented smart garbage cans that can tell when you put something in, it'll say, it'll send you a text and say, good job, Melina. You put the bottle in the recycling. You've been entered into the lottery. Uh, or wow. it'll say, hey, that's a rock that doesn't belong in here. You don't get anything. Or if I put the bottle in the trash, it'll tell me what to do next time to change that behavior. And so that is relying on some rules that we already have. We love to win. We love the opportunity. Oh, we have optimism bias. We're excited about how we might win something. And they tested, funny enough, bringing it back to movie theaters, <laughs> at four movie theaters across Sweden for 30 days, they tested. And like we say, for anybody who doesn't remember the last time you went to a movie, it's a pretty gross place where people leave everything behind and assume someone else is going to take care of it, right? And they had 100% compliance of people throwing away and properly sorting everything that they had. And people running through the aisles, trying to find if anybody had left anything behind that they could throw away. And women 
looking through wow. their bags for extra pieces of trash to be able to throw away because it was, you know, one piece of trash, one ticket. And they specifically chose this place because they speak like 80 different languages or something. And so it had to be a very simple message, just telling people you could be entered into this lottery. And in that case, the prize was only 500 euro. But if you think about it, like, okay, I put the cup in here and I could win 500 euro or free lottery tickets, like, or free movie tickets, like amazing. That's easy. And so when you think about changing behavior, you have to disassociate yourself from the why you want someone to do it, right? So if you're, I want people to be as passionate as me about the environment. I want them to care about these same things. Or do you just want the bottle to make it into the recycling bin at the end of the day, right? You just want the action. And so they're doing it for a selfish reason, but who cares, right? It's about motivating the right behavior and then pulling those proper triggers. So being able to present that in a different way makes a huge difference and changes incredibly easy when you set it up that way. Uh, I want to talk about one more thing and I want to switch it to now the company examples, right? Brand examples. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things while you were telling me that one, one thing that was kind of nagging in the, in the back of my mind was I, I listen to a lot of motivational videos when I'm working, you know, uh, that's, it's, it's noise for me, but it's good noise for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, Mel, Mel Robbins, I think that's her name, uh, re mm -hmm. really motivational speaker. Right. She says that uh, your mind is engineered the way it's engineered is to reject to do something, right? Mm. Like literally, if, if you say, go and do this, your mind actually is working actively, proactively on not doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, so how much of that plays into behavior, right? When you want to, when, when you want people to not do something or versus you want them to actually do something because sometimes not doing something is a good behavior. Like don't spit on the ground, you know? So that's, that's a behavior. It's a negative behavior. You don't want them doing that. Right. Versus, mm -hmm. um, you know, disabled parking, you know, people who are disabled, they're, they're handicapped. That's their parking spot. You know, for them, you're not saying to them not to park there, but you're telling them it's parking for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, really does get back to the habitual way that we make decisions. And so from a company, it's important to consider with the behavior you're trying to get someone to do, you want to know if you're already the habit. So if you're the market leader, if you're Coca-Cola, you have a very different strategy than Pepsi or Jones soda or someone else that's trying to be seen and break people of existing habits that they already have. And so knowing where you are. And if you are that status quo, if you're the default choice, you want to be doing everything possible to not disrupt that. Right. And people want to be keeping with the actions that they're typically doing because of how the brain likes to make decisions. And if you are someone that's trying to break in and you want to be seen, you have to do something to you know, flag the uh, conscious brain, the subconscious say, Hey, Hey, something's different here. There's something that we need to be paying attention to, to get people to take action. And that's where you may have to do something that's a little bit more jarring, or that's going to be, you know, a little shocking or something to get that initial attention away from what people are used to doing. And so it's important to know the context, what you want people to do, where you want them to go, because yeah, the status quo is really where our brains like to live. Now, 
can can we apply behavioral economics like let's say if i'm running um if i'm running walmart if i'm running johnson and johnson or i'm running a, a unit of one of those companies right or, or um you know um some farm gigantic hospital system you know that because it, when you're very big or or big could be a country you know you mentioned switzerland <laughs> earlier right yeah um so how can you can you provide some examples for gigantic companies wanting to make sustainable changes uh that that actually are uh, are going to have positive income yeah absolutely Outco i'm sorry outcome not income <laughs> outcome. yeah well in many cases both right which yeah. is good uh, <laughs> that helps uh, for companies to feel good about them so there are definitely there are governments around the world that have what's called a nudge unit typically so in behavioral science, behavioral economics, we work in nudging uh, typically. So it's uh, where no th things aren't required, but it's helping to show the best option for people, but uh, they still have free choice. Um, so you have lots of countries and municipalities around the world that do have those units already. Many, many ways uh, that they're helping to change behavior. Um, one study that comes to mind is of getting uh, doctors in um, um, Australia to prescribe less antibiotics. And so this is based on we're a herding species. And so social proof has a really big impact on our behavior and knowing other people like us, what they're doing. This is why star reviews and testimonials and things uh, make a really big difference. And so knowing that, you could just tell people, hey, prescribe less. Don't prescribe so many antibiotics. But that doesn't actually do anything to change behavior. In this case, they sent out letters to the doctors that were prescribing the most and said, you're prescribing more than 80% of your peers. You're prescribing antibiotics more than 90% of your peers. And they started naturally prescribing less by understanding and leveraging that so you can help to nudge for uh, better, you know, betterment of, of everyone if we have less antibiotics being prescribed. And in the case of, you know, you mentioned Walmart specifically, uh, they have a chief economist now who was previously at Uber and at Lyft and is now there at Walmart. Uh, his name is John List. He's fantastic, really, really nice guy. Um, and before he was there, I actually did a little bit of work with Walmart on sustainability um, and reducing plastic. And so if you think about reducing plastic usage, one of the things that we see a lot is like, you know, people that have things in bottles, you just make the bottle a little bit thinner, right? You can get uh, a lot um, less plastic, especially when you're at scale. There, it's a it's a big difference, and people won't really notice. And so, similarly, before um, I was brought in, this was something where you say, "Hey, we'll reduce the thickness of the plastic bags," and did lots of testing. Uh, they weren't set up that they. It was a very very small fail rate. They did a tiny reduction, but there were just enough things where you know the pasta sauce hit at the wrong angle when some box was in there and the bag split and people started to talk and you heard that this happened. And so what they ended up having is then people started double bagging all the, yeah. at all the stores, right? So they didn't reduce the plastic by half. So you actually have it's more increased. bag usage, right? <laughs> yeah. This uh, problem that has become worse because of something that you were doing to try to 
help them make it easier. And so instead, you know, in working with them, you know, taking a step back and looking at some options um, of what you might do that's a little bit different. And, you know, one of the solutions that was presented in this question storming session I did with them was looking at um, even the bags, you, we've all been to the store, right? So you see where they put the plastic bags on the hooks. On the little the, rack. Right, yeah. right on the rack. Yeah. And so one of the big problems is that actually uh, associates would overfill those and then you couldn't pull them off properly. So they'd end up throwing away, you know, chunks of say a hundred bags at once that they would throw away. Uh, and then they don't wow. go in the, to be put back on, but it's just a quick, oh, oops, toss, Right. And so by just painting a line, a fill line <laughs> at the stations, you could reduce hundreds and hundreds, thousands, millions of bags that get tossed from all those stores across Walmart. And that's just a simple thing that doesn't even have to impact customers at all and is a way that you can be more sustainable without impacting your customer satisfaction. And then it's also easier for employees. And that's, you know, one way of many that you could look to be more sustainable and reduce plastic. Actually, one one of the things uh, from my experience with Walmart was that uh, I was not directly involved in the conversation, but I I knew of it was um, uh, when when the it was a vitamin company, when they were pitching a new product, it was a beautiful product packaged into a box and it looked amazing on the shelf. I'm an e-commerce guy, so I don't really care about the shelf. I care about more photography of the product, right? So when they were having a meeting with somebody at Walmart and and the price negotiation became a question, right? Mm -hmm. And the company couldn't actually think of cutting back anymore. That was the absolute minimum they could cut to. So that the person who was in there, the, the executive from Walmart said, what about the box? You know, you took the vitamin, you put it in the box. Why do you need the box? How much is the box? Oh, it, it costs us uh, with labor and time and, and printing and everything, five cents. Okay. I don't need the box. Just give me the bottle, right? I mean, if you think about it, that's not, a, that's not just about a cost-cutting uh, decision, but it's also the paper that goes into that and the process and Maybe the bottles are ready to go, but you don't have the paper to, to put it in, into the box to put it in. Now you're delayed in production and you can't send inventory. So with that one decision, they cut out a lot of the production line, basically. And, mm -hmm. and, they, and, and the product became cheaper by five cents. But yeah. we, in case of volume per bottle, in case of Walmart volume, that's tremendous. That's yeah. tremendous. I mean, Walmart deciding to uh, put LEDs in, in the, all of their stores and not using the, the traditional light bulbs, that's gigantic savings across the board when, when somebody like that does, makes that kind of a, a, a change. That's a, that's a gigantic change. Yeah, uh, that made me think of another concept in uh, behavioral economics, which is called anchoring and adjustment. And it looks at numbers. And I look at this for negotiation as one of many areas that this comes into play. Uh, but whether you're negotiating with Walmart or with anything else, your salary you're looking for, whatever, uh, asking for budget cuts. Buying a house. Um, yeah, yes. Uh, so don't go in with the lowest number that you can possibly get to when you go into the meeting, especially with a company like Walmart that you know is notorious for really 
cutting prices. Uh, but you want to be looking for, uh, something that's a little bit there. So you have some, some wiggle room when you're looking at this. And if you're presenting and pitching products or things, we feel conditioned to start low and work our way up. Right. But if you say, okay, we've got this thing, it's $50, um, you know, but that's not super great, but we, and then there's this $5,000 option that is, is really, really great that we think you should get. And some people get a $50,000 option. You're like, yikes. Like I'm going to go with the $50 thing because those other things feel incredibly expensive compared to what you started with that anchor. You said at $50, if you instead say, so we have $50,000 packages available. This is something that people get, uh, you know, sometimes you need something really custom, but we even have this $5,000 thing that works for most people that's getting our herding and social proof in there. So people like you, I would say a $5,000 option is uh, going to be plenty for what it is that you need. And we could always look at something custom down the road. Like 5,000 feels totally reasonable when we started talking about 50,000 versus if you start low and, and work your way up. So something gigantic happened to all of humanity, right? For the past three, four years, this is the fourth year it's going, and it's the global pandemic, right? And I believe that from what I see from my vantage point, I, I see a lot of behavioral changes happened with people, right? Uh, social distancing is one of them. The other one is uh, understanding how to do FaceTime. Even grandma knows how to do FaceTime and, and Zoom and order from Instacart, right? Uh, mm -hmm. that's a, that's gigantic behavioral changes and where people got educated very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, streaming services and or ordering a Uber and stuff like that. It just became that all that behavior came in into that G given all of those things that we were facing Oh, Yeah. QR code, QR code existed for a long time. Nobody was adopting it. No consumers weren't no. adopting it. And all of a sudden it became <laughs> every restaurant you go to, you do the QR code thing. You, there is no menu anymore. It's just a QR mm -hmm. code. You get it on your phone and then you could select. And in fact, you could even place an order right there. And mm -hmm. then the, and the waiter brings the food to you, to your table, right? So given all of these massive amounts of change and, and behavioral change that we went through, um, are there any examples of, of that because of the pandemic, any brands that you can think of that, that were, I think you meant, you had mentioned Mars, Kind and, and, and Maker's Mark, uh, any of those that, that you see relevant there related to something meaningful that they did uh, in, in the pandemic? Yeah, so uh, Maker's Mark is a really great example of this. And they, um, so alcohol has, there's the on-premise and off-premise is what they look at and how they're selling. So on-premise being at a restaurant and off-premise being if you're going to be, you know, a consumer going and buying uh, their alcohol from, you know, liquor store or uh, depending on the state you're in at the grocery store. And so they have, you know, sales different. In some cases, you have bottles and things that are very different between the two. That was something people saw with toilet paper, right? Where it was like, we know you have all the paper products, but they're made for those giant rolls. So you couldn't turn them into customer facing. That was a real logistical problem for uh, paper companies. Uh, but for Maker's Mark, they were one that the bottles were the same whether you were sending them to a bar or restaurant or elsewhere. And you had actually a really significant shift across the industry for uh, people buying alcohol that they were uh, 
alcohol sales actually went up quite a bit in the pandemic, which I don't I know heard. that any of us are all that. I don't drink at all, that. by the way. I don't drink at all, but I did hear that uh, uh, two things, two behaviors, right? Uh, streaming, watching a ton of Netflix, mm -hmm. and then drinking. And, and right. um, depending on the state you're in, uh, cannabis use also. That mm -hmm. was the third yeah. one. Yeah. Legal cannabis. And Right. And so with that, um, you know, people were, you know, stocking up on alcohol. And so actually for a lot of those businesses, um, Maker's Mark and uh, any of these others, that they wouldn't have necessarily seen a huge shift in their overall sales. And so there's an option to just say, hey, you know, the restaurants will figure it out and we'll be here there when they're ready, which is what most people did. And at Maker's Mark, they know that those restaurants are important. Those are partners and allies of theirs, and they wanted to help them to stay open. And so the um, they brought in ways to help their um, their restaurants across the country to be able to still make money even when they couldn't have people in the restaurants. And Maker's Mark was donating bottles and things that they were able to be giving out. And uh, they started, they partnered with some of their restaurants to do virtual cocktail hours where they would be having their clientele that would have been coming in uh, that they could get kits, you know, that were being delivered, you go pick up and you get the cocktail making kit and the bartender was going to do a Zoom that was sponsored by Maker's Mark to show you how to make the drink at home and everybody's able to be part of that together that misses being able to be at the restaurant and all the you know money that's being made there is for the restaurant and that being about them and not being about makers. And so they did a whole lot of things to really support restaurants. And one of them is they actually brought in myself and team at uh, Texas A&M. We did a series of four trainings for restaurants around the country to be able to understand behavioral economics, how to apply it, that they did just free for these clients that use Maker's Mark uh, to be able to learn how they could optimize their menus, how they could be increasing tips, how they could be thinking about social media now and transitioning when during a pandemic and just Makers was there to support them when it didn't, when they didn't need to be. And so when things started to open up again, it made it to where they've definitely seen in their bottom line that when people were having to choose what they were going to bring in, what they're going to feature, what's going to be on their menus, they were saying very specifically, Makers was here, so they get the space. We care about them. They cared about us. And yeah. they had a real increase in sales where others had, you know, potentially a more difficult time coming back. And so really thinking about being, we're human, right? <laughs> Getting back to what we were saying and thinking about what you can be doing to support people, to do the right thing, to care about others, to support them. Uh, business and relationships are a long game. It's a, a way that you want to be the best that you can this positive force in the world and know that it's going to come back in a really positive way and understanding human behavior, I think is a great way to do that. Talking about human behavior. One of the things I wanted to ask you, um, this was, this story is like about 15 years old. You know, I, I was at a company and in that company, um, one of the, one of the biggest pet peeves mm -hmm. I had, right. Uh, the thing is I'm a very punctu punctual person, right. Mm -hmm. When you say that the meeting starts at 10, the meeting starts at 10. Uh, when you say that uh, uh, the presentation is going to be X, Y, Z at this time, I, I, I believe you that, that that's going to happen, right? 
but in this in this specific company uh it was a small business it was a small brand um you know it was doing well but it was a small brand um with about i would say 30 40 employees right uh even though there was a work schedule from 9 a.m to 6 p.m right with one hour lunch right uh from 9 a.m to 6 p.m monday through friday nobody showed up at 9 a.m no one and it was like people would come in at 9 30 9 35 9 45 and if the meeting and if there was a schedule for a meeting for let's say it will start at 11 a.m the the meeting could start between 11 and 6 p.m it could be it could start at 11 45 uh it could be hey we are meeting right now everybody's here now right so how can you, you know, how do you uh, apply your principles, the, the behavioral uh, economics principles to modify that behavior, right? Where their <laughs> punctuality is a serious issue. By the way, that issue was not, I, I was an executive there. Um, that issue stemmed from at the very top. Yeah. The, the it, top executives, the CEO, the founders, everybody, everybody was like that, you know. And yep. then that became the, that became the, the, the behavior, the normal for everybody else. And it pissed people off like me who understand that it's business setting, it's professional. <laughs> 10 a.m. meeting means 10 a.m. In fact, it's 9.59 a.m. You're supposed to sit, make sure that the meeting starts on time promptly at 10, you know? Right, yeah. The, so definitely you alluded to a big piece of it there in that the as those sorts of behaviors originate from somewhere and people emulate those before them. Again, we're a herding species. And so you see what others do and you start to do it. That's, you know, you may say that we have, a, we care about work-life balance, but if the CEO is sending emails at 2 a.m. asking questions, people feel like they need to be ready to respond at 2 a.m. when they get the email. And it's one thing to say, oh, I'll be up, but you don't have to be. But then people think, oh, I should if I'm the first one to respond, they'll know that I care and I'm like them. And, and, you know, there's a reason that we have schedule send buttons. It's easy. Technology allows us to make all sorts of changes now. Right. And like you said, if the, the founders, the CEO are just sort of willy nilly about meetings, everyone's going to do that and get into that habit. Like you were saying of, well, everyone's here, let's just meet now. And it only takes a few times for that to just cascade and be something that's the norm. And that's a problem. Uh, so the example, there's one in my second book, what your employees need and can't tell you from a really awesome, uh, professor. His name is Agnes Steeb and he is in France and was talking about how one of his students had heard where he was talking about some of this hurting, norming, social proof things and decided to implement because they had an issue with people showing up late to meetings, just, it was the norm. Everybody's late. And even though we all see that people are late, it just doesn't register in the same way. And telling people you have to be on time. We care about being on time. Doesn't always get people to change their behavior. And so what they did is where they already had TV screens in the room, stuff that you would put up for, if you had a you know, telephone conference people in or video conference people in uh, or showing reports or something. And so they had a chart that had everyone's name on it. And then you would get a box of a specific color if you were on time to the meeting. And then it would, it started to stack over time and you'd get a big blank 
you know, space, you could see there have been this many meetings and the, this person's chart is only this high and you can see, wow, they missed a lot uh, of meetings. Nobody said anything. It was just someone's job to say like they get the blue box because you were at this meeting at 10 a.m. Tuesday, you get a pink box. Just tracking. Box. Yep. Just tracking. And just, yeah. and it's just on the wall and nobody says anything, but it's just got your name on it. And within five or maybe six meetings, I forget, they had gone to a hundred percent of people being on time to meetings from, you know, something it was, I think less than 60% uh, that they had on time performance. And so nobody had to say anything. It was just showing something that, we all know anyway, people can see and remember if you were late a lot, it's like the notorious late people, we know who they are, but for some reason, seeing it there in the chart jarred our brains and, and created a behavior change differently than it, it might have otherwise. Wow. And so what about the opposite side of it? Cause I don't want to just sound like I'm beating down on that company. I, even though I didn't name them, you know, um, what about time pressures? Right. Yes. Time pressures. How do they like negatively impact businesses, employees? What what can we, what what can you do to kind of mitigate those kinds of things? Like there's a deadline coming. Black Friday sale is not going to move. Right. You, we have to get the store ready, you know. Yeah. Well, this is one of the biggest things that I talk about in that book, What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You, about thinking about those 35,000 decisions and all of what we're doing all the time, people are constantly having to deal with pressures and competing deadlines and things like that. And far too often companies are trying to have people do too many things. And a lot of unimportant work is what takes up time. And so, you know, uh, some studies are showing over 60% of the work people do every day is unimportant. And it's a lot of tedium that you're following up because of a badly communicated email on the front end and not just like the burnt popcorn one I was talking about before, but just that you have a lot of open-endedness and back and forth that has to come up, right? So if someone says, hey, can you meet? And then go, um, yeah, when? Like, oh, I don't know maybe tomorrow. And then you get the Slack chat and the emails and the people stopping by and all of the little things that happen where if you would have just had a better email to start with it, all of that wouldn't have been necessary. Am I sending the agenda? Are you sending the agenda? What room are we going to be? Are we going to be virtual? Are we over the phone? Back, 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 back. Right. If you delete a lot of that, it can help. And so when we look at time pressure, you know, we've all said myself included that we, I work best under a deadline and that's mm. wrong you don't the end, right? Science has shown that we don't, we may make, we make some, uh, rapid decisions faster than we would have when we have lots of time, but they are not better decisions. They're shown to be less creative. You know, it's, you know, when you have all the time, you think, Oh, I could redo this meeting and change up the report and whatever. And then you realize it's tomorrow and you say, eh, I'll do that next time. And I'm just going to do the same old crappy report that everybody hates. And you're going to just deal with it because you have to in the moment. That's not better. It just happened quickly because you had to do it. And so having more space freed up, having less stress uh, and time pressure is a form of stress on our bodies, on our brains. And it just is not a fun way to be working. And so having time for people to have mind wandering even worked in helps you to be more creative, to be able to go out and take a walk or to work on something that's unrelated to what you're doing, to be able to talk to other people on different teams. 
all of that where you have more space and less deadlines, but it's just important stuff where everyone knows this is the most important thing we're working on this month for our whole department. Like this is the focus and it's just this one thing. It just alleviates a lot of that extra stress and that can help everyone to do a better job. You know, one of the things that I do with my clients and and they're like amazed at how quickly I turn their businesses around, like in, in, Six to twelve weeks, I can take a business and and double their revenue and and their profitability. It, that's a very short period of time, mm-hmm. and I call it momentum, right? Mm-hmm. I need to have a weekly momentum, a daily momentum. If you don't do it on Monday, it backs up on Tuesday. If you don't do it on Tuesday, now Monday and Tuesday is backed up, right? And you don't have momentum. And if if you and by the way, these changes don't have to be gigantic changes, right? Walmart changing all the light bulbs—that's a gigantic project. You know, right. uh, you could do small changes, small changes and meaningful changes that would have a deeper impact. Right. And then sustainable impact that that revenue is going to be trending on a daily basis. Not that you just had a blip because of Black Friday sale, you know. So can you elaborate on like micro shifts that you that's a term that you use micro shifts and, and behavior economics? Yeah. So. In that same book, uh, talking about behavior change, uh, we're looking at big lifelong philosophy type changes, things that can take more time. So to get some little wins along the way, I have a few micro shift moments that are sprinkled in there that can help, uh, it just be easier for people to communicate with you. Uh, one of them is, you know, I advise against, especially if you're trying to set up a lot of trust in your team, you want people to know that you trust them, that they trust you. You want that openness. If you have a blurred background on your virtual screen, our eyes are constantly scanning the world around us three times per second on average. And really you're just telling people over and over again, I don't trust you enough to see the room that I'm in. And that's <laughs> not the message that you want to be saying. Right. Wow. And so even if it's a little bit messy, you have it be open to it, let people experience that. And if it is something you have been doing and you're working on trust, you could just say, Hey, I just heard, you know, this thing on this podcast person from the brainy business. She's talking about this. It's amazing. Simple little thing that I don't want you to think I've been communicating that I don't trust you to see my space. And so even though, you know, there's a pile of my kids toys back here, I trust you enough to see it. I'm here with you. This matters to me. And so just know it's because I trust you. And like people will remember that it's a simple shift, but it can help just open the door a little bit to help people be open. I have tips about uh, email signatures and other little tidbits in there too, little simple shifts. Definitely. Uh, definitely. I think I would highly recommend people checking out both of the books, you know, uh, by, by Melina Palmer. Um, so I asked this question from every guest that I have, right? What is your number one $100,000 expert insight into behavioral economics? What should people take away and implement right away at today? Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, uh, I end every episode of my podcast and my email signature is to be thoughtful. And I think that's the easiest thing that you can do, which is to be a little bit more thoughtful, both in your own behavior, saying, stop a moment and say, why did I click on that email? Why did I delete this thing? Why did they put that on that shelf? I wonder if that was intentional or not. What if, what if, what if, right? Ask more questions and also just be more thoughtful in your communication with others. You may say, it's not my job to help those people to feel good at work or whatever for your team or something. Um, but what if it was? 
right? Maybe you, it, it may not be your job, but it could be right. And it probably won't be that much extra effort and it can help along the way of where you say, put a little bit more thoughtfulness into the email and you can save hours of productive time on the other side. Uh, there are little shifts you can do that can have a really big impact if you incorporate a little bit more thoughtfulness. Well said, Melina. Thank you for being on the show and sharing your journey as well as uh, all of all of this wisdom related to uh, behavioral economics. Of course. Thanks for having me. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. And uh, whether you're catching this live on, uh, you know, on the uh, on any of the favorite channels that you have, or you're catching it on a recording, I appreciate you. And we have amazing guests like Melina coming up on the on the show. Thank you again for joining us.